Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year has gone by incredibly quickly, but it's always nice to pause and take stock. What's something you're proud of in 2024 so far? What's something you still want to accomplish this year? I know I'm guilty of falling into a routine and not always thinking about the bigger picture, but as the great Ferris Bueller once said, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you can miss it. So it's crucial to take a moment to celebrate your wins and make adjustments for the rest of the year. Therapy can help you contextualize your progress and set achievable goals for the next six months. As you surely know by now, it's not only for people who have experienced major trauma. Therapy is helpful in all kinds of ways, including learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. If you've been considering trying therapy, check out BetterHelp. It's fully online and was specifically designed to be flexible and customizable to your schedule. To get started, just fill out a brief questionnaire that matches you up with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com FilmDaily today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash film daily. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for September 11th, 2017. On today's show, we'll be diving into the news, talking about a 47 meters down sequel. You'll never guess the title. We'll talk about Colin Trevorrow's departure from Star Wars Episode Nine. There's some new quotes running around the internet, and we want to talk about those. Uh, the first reviews for... Seth MacFarlane's The Orville have hit the web, and we'll tell you if the show is good or not. Probably the latter. And uh, is Rotten Tomatoes responsible for the terrible summer box office? And in the mailbag, we'll be talking about the greatest plot twists in movie history, and we'll recommend some more unknown movies with plot twists. Uh, This is Peter Serretta, and with me on today's show are Slash Film writers Ben Pearson. Hey, what's up? And Huay Tran Bui. Hey, everyone. Okay, before we get into the news, we're recording this on Friday. Uh, we're, we're all ready for the weekend. Uh, H.E., you're, you're excited to see it this weekend. I'm, I wouldn't <laughs> say excited. I am anticipating it. I have, I've been dragged by my friend to go see it uh, this afternoon, um, although I originally wanted to see it during the day so I wouldn't have to emerge from the theater at night surrounded by darkness and... <laughs> terror so i i have mentioned before that i am not 
I'm pretty averse to uh, holly to horror, horror films. I'm sorry, and um, but I'm taking the plunge for this one. I'm trying to open myself up to new things. I've heard so many good things about it, so I'm gonna go see it. Bring a blanket with me, you know. I I think you'll dig it. I think you'll dig the coming of age stuff. Um, yes. Yeah, and uh, Ben and I were not scared by it, but um, it seems like you have a lower tolerance of fear. So I'm interested to hear what you think of the movie. Ben, I mean, I was some, I was scared by some things. I'm not trying to come off like a, a total badass here. I, there were there were some moments where I was uh, I, the movie got me pretty good uh, at a few different moments. So um, yeah, definitely bring that blanket, HT. Okay, guys, let's jump into the news. Uh, 47 meters down, a movie that was never supposed to be released in theaters is supposed to be a direct to DVD movie is now getting a sequel. Ben, you wrote the story for SlashFilm.com. What do we know? Yeah, it's sort of crazy. This movie was made for five and a half million dollars and ended up making um, more than 53 million worldwide. The Weinstein Company, their uh, genre arm, Dimension Films, was going to put this straight to uh, video on demand last year. And then earlier this summer, uh, 47 Meters Down was acquired by um, a company called Entertainment Studios, and they liked the movie enough to give it a theatrical release, and that ended up paying off really in, in a big way for them. So uh, big enough to justify a sequel, apparently, which is naturally titled 48 Meters Down. Uh, that that one are, extra meter is deadly. It's going to make all the difference. <laughs> um, the original director, uh, Johannes Roberts, is returning to direct 48 Meters Down. He is also co-writing the film, with uh, Ernest Riera, who co-wrote the first film with him. So it's basically the the whole creative team is getting back together on that one. Um, the sequel is going to relocate the action from Mexico to Brazil. And this one follows a group of girls looking for adventure in the coastal metropolis of Recife, hoping to get off the well-worn tourist trail they hear about some hidden underwater ruins only to find that the turquoise waves of their secret Atlantis aren't completely uninhabited. So, uh, yeah, more shark action. And uh, even when 47 Meters Down came out, I was like, the shark attack movie genre is never going to go out of style. Like, this is a formula that people love uh, ever since Jaws and maybe even before that. And it's it's uh, it's surprising to me, frankly, that there aren't more shark attack movies every year. We had The Shallows a couple years ago, and I think that one sort of spurred this one on. But, uh, yeah, 48 meters down, coming soon. I really like The Shallows a lot. I'm, I'm surprised that film ha- didn't get more uh, p- play in film Twitter. Um, th- you know, I think it, what's interesting is that in today's a, a day and age where we know everything, we have the internet, uh, there isn't much mystery. But when you get into that water, we don't know what's underneath the water. And I feel like yeah. that, that is like the one of the few things in this on this planet that is tr- still truly scary. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. the deep ocean uh, harbors some of the scariest creatures that we couldn't even imagine being in deep space, so... It, Only it, James Cameron knows what lies beneath. Yes. <laughs> HT, have you seen The Shallows? I actually have seen The Shallows. I saw it in theaters, and I, I quite liked it too, surprisingly. Um, it was just over-the-top, uh, campy fun. Uh, even though it didn't really start off as a camp film, it definitely became campy towards the end. And I just enjoyed it for what it was, which was Blake Lively in a bikini fighting a shark and hanging out with a <laughs> seagull named Steven Seagull. <laughs> yes. Um, okay. So also in the news is uh, we're, we're learning more and more about 
why Colin Trevorrow left Star Wars Episode Nine. Uh, Vulture published a report basically saying he was fired, which mm-hmm. is I, I I think strange considering that they they say it was an amicable split. Um, HT, uh, could you read some of these quotes for us? Yes. Earlier this week, we heard that it was over creative differences that Colin Trevorrow left the project, but apparently he was fired over uh, some attitude problems. So uh, Vulture talked to some industry uh, insiders, and there are some really colorful quotes uh, in this article. Uh, Let me read the first one. During the making of Jurassic World, he focused a great deal of his creative energies on asserting his opinion. But because he had been personally hired by Spielberg, nobody could say, you're fired. Once that film went through the roof and he chose to do Henry, he was unbearable. He had an egotistical point of view, and he was always asserting that. Um, So he apparently became very egotistical, very uh, assertive, as I said. and um, Unmanageable is one of the words. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. um, He clashed, apparently, with Kathleen Kennedy, which is apparently the one thing that you don't want to do when you're working on a project with her. Uh, this is the last colorful quote um, of speaking of the uh, managing um, style of Kathleen Kennedy. There is one gatekeeper when it comes to Star Wars, and it's Kathleen Kennedy. This is a veteran movie producer who said this. If you rub Kathleen Kennedy the wrong way, in any way, you're out. You're done. A lot of these young new directors want to come in and say, I want to do this, I want to do that. A lot of these guys, Lord and Miller, Colin Trevorrow, got very rich very fast and believed a lot of their own hype. And they don't want to play by the rules. They want to do shit differently. And Kathleen Kennedy isn't going to fuck around with that. (laughs) I love that quote. You know, this is definitely what I've heard about Kathleen Kennedy in the past is, you know, if if she wants things done one way and you're in a meeting with her and, you know, the filmmaker is pushing back and you arrive on set, good chance that you know, what the way she wanted it to be done, everybody's prepared to do. <laughs> Did I mean like, <laughs> uh, like she, she, it, it just happened. She makes things happen like that. And, um, and I think that's a good, powerful producer. I do think some of these quotes in here are maybe unfair to Colin Trevorrow, at least from what I've heard from behind the scenes people. I've talked to a bunch of people that have worked with him over the years on Jurassic World and other things. Um, and none of them seem to have. I mean, they're all males, so mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, take Colin that. Trevorrow hasn't been painting himself in a good light lately. Um, with first this story, and then also with the recent uh, comments that he's made about uh, being used an example as an example of white privilege, when articles have been written about how there aren't as many female directors or female people behind the scenes. Yeah. So he is often kind of brought up in that regard because he hasn't been he hasn't spoken very well about it so i i actually admire kathleen kennedy a lot more uh reading <laughs> these quotes i just i think i really respect her for standing up for a star wars like that i mean okay so uh i think it's probably a little unfair to categorize trevorrow as you know an egomaniac or something because when you think about it, all directors sort of have to have those sort of qual- personality yeah. qualities, right? To in order to lead such a massive production. Um, Actually, pause so, for a second. When yeah, you, what you, to what you're saying, if this story, you know, the the, the whole internet hates Colin Trevorrow. I don't know why. If this story was about Quentin Tarantino making a film for Kathleen Kennedy, and you read this exact quotes of, you know, him having this vision that he was fighting for and what, and you know, the studio executive, 
you know, push back. You know, it'd be a whole different story. But because it's Colin Trevorrow, uh, I feel like it's getting painted in a different light. But you go on. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, I was just that part of the of these quotes sort of rubs me the wrong way, because I feel like that is applicable to literally every director in Hollywood, like anybody, you know, male or female, like anybody has to have that sort of strong, outgoing, assertive, you know, arrogant, almost personality in order to uh, succeed in the business. So that part is the only thing that sort of, um, yeah, rubs me the wrong way a little bit. But but Peter, I'm interested in sort of what you think about how these creative differences even form within Lucasfilm because it seems to me like in the early stages when Kennedy is meeting with people like Lorna Miller and people like Colin Trevorrow, they would have conversations about what they want the end product to look like. And it just, it's so strange to me that, um, that they all seem to be on the same page when they get hired. And then slowly as the, as things sort of, you know, unspool, they tend to, uh, there tends to be a huge gap that forms there. And why do you think that is? And how do you think that happens? I mean, I can't speak to how it happens in Lucasfilm as a, you know, as a whole, but I, Colin Trevorrow was hired to direct Star Wars Episode Nine before I think Ryan Johnson even directed Episode Eight, right? I believe um, that's correct. Yeah. So, from what I understand, it's not. This is not um, problems in the same sense as Lord and Miller, where it's kind of like uh, their vision for the film and the tone and stuff. I, I, I think what they were battling over were the direction and where they want to take these characters. And I think when he came on board, you know, you're going off of what J.J. Abrams did, and you had no idea what Ryan Johnson's going to do. So it's not like I think. I don't know. I, this is all assumptions on my part because because right. I don't know what he wanted to do. But say, for instance, I mean, I'm making this a big for instance. This is not the case. But say, for instance, he wanted to, you know, have the final film redeem Kylo Ren, have him, you know, come back to the Jedi and have Rey turn into a Sith. And she was hugely against that. I mean, that's something you could see that's a conflict that you cannot get past do you know what i mean yeah but that that's the thing is like i feel like that kind of those kinds of discussions those broad story discussions would happen in those initial meetings and she wouldn't even bring them on if if she didn't agree with those kinds of things i don't know maybe uh, maybe i'm just not familiar with the way that lucasfilm works maybe they like you're saying maybe they hired him so early on in the process that they were just like we like the stuff you've done we think you have some potential um you know you've you've pitched us like some super super broad stuff and we'll see what happens in a few months when we have a better idea of what ryan johnson has going on then you can like continually pitch us and you know hone your thing with the story group and maybe that's how it works there i'm not entirely sure it's just it's it's that's the whole thing with this that sort of strikes me as odd with the whole um with all these problems with within lucasfilm is that it just seems like we don't hear about this stuff very often at other studios so there must be some way of that you know know, things work at lucasfilm one problem i see um not to prolong this but one problem i see is Marvel has a grand plan. And sure, like, you know, the episodes, just like episodes of TV shows, the director goes in and, you know, does his own thing, but it it fits to this grand plan. And I think when J.J. Abrams did Star Wars The Force Awakens, he should have had a grand plan, a treatment 
for the three films. But the more and more I talk to, you know, the people involved, it it seems like J.J. Abrams wrote, you know, just like he wrote the pilot episode of Lost with Mm -hmm. Lindelof. And then left it off. Yeah, I mean, like, he, he didn't have this huge grand plan. And I think he was just creating the pilot episode. And I think the problem is when they brought in these other directors, they didn't have this plan of like, oh, here's what we want to do in these films. I mean, Marvel goes on these retreats and like, you know, they, you know, they're like, let's come up with this idea for Doctor Strange. We want to have this villain. We want to have, you know, and then Scott Derrickson comes on and like, how about we do this time travel sequence? Do you know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. it it changes the film, but it's still fitting on what they want to do on that level. Uh, So I think that's probably... uh, the problem i think yeah the philosophical <laughs> difference in the way things are done yeah and, and, and that goes to show you giving more control to the filmmakers can lead to problems so um yes let's move on uh the orville seth mcfarland's star trek inspired show uh the first reviews have hit the web ben you're at this roundup on slash film.com is it good uh, so it doesn't sound very good, sadly. Um, I am—I wouldn't go as far as, as to call myself a Seth MacFarlane apologist, but I feel like I like him a lot more than other people do, even though I didn't really care for Ted 2 that much, and I'm not crazy about A Million Ways to Die in the West. There's something about him that I don't find quite as repulsive as uh, <laughs> as a ton of people seem to. Um, I, maybe it's just he's you know sort of a song and dance man at heart, and I sort of appreciate that, uh, that aspect of uh, his personality. But um, but yeah, when I heard that he was making a Star Trek inspired show, I was like, oh, this is going to be a comedy sort of in the vein of Family Guy, but it's live action. It puts Seth MacFarlane, uh, you know, he's created the show. He's the star of it. It's putting him front and center. Um, this is going to be like a funny thing. But it turns out that this show, at least according to a lot of these earlier views, is not actually a comedy, which is a strange thing. It's more of a drama with just like a few moments of humor sort of uh, spattered throughout the whole thing. And it's weird because a lot of the marketing that uh, Fox has done for this has been collecting a lot of those jokes and basically presenting this show as a comedy, which is throwing a lot of people off. Um, yeah, I'm trying to look at I, I rounded up a bunch of uh, reviews here on the site so you can read that at slashfilm.com, but I'll read a couple little um, sections from a couple of these. Um, Dave Nimitz at TV Line says that, uh, frankly, McFarlane is way out of his depth here, not only as a dramatic actor, but also, oh, I'm sorry, not only as a dramatic writer, but also as an actor. After making a career as an irreverent smartass, it's near impossible to take him seriously as a dramatic leading man. So that doesn't really sound great. And a lot of people have sort of dinged his uh, acting talents as it were in this show um the writing for the female characters is not supposed to be very good and yeah weirdly it's like just not that funny um Hmm. and you know it's also an hour-long show which is uh apparently way too long for a show that doesn't quite know what it wants to be yet and to be fair these people have only seen the first three episodes of the show i should also mention mention that it premieres this sunday night on Fox, I think at eight o'clock. So if you want to check it out and tune in for yourself, that's when you can watch it. But uh, and you know, a lot of shows have some trouble in the very beginning. It took famously, it took Parks and Rec like a full season to sort of really find their groove and and sort of uh, become the great show that it ended up being. But so maybe it's a little unfair to judge the show um, on only its first three episodes. But it does sound like this one is uh, more sort of off the rails than many other shows just in its first three hours. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm not hearing great things about the Orville and you can read a ton of, uh, 
you know, excerpts from other people's reviews and stuff uh, on SlashFilm.com. Yeah, I just don't think I have any interest in seeing this. Um, it just doesn't look good. The name of the show is just baffling. And yeah, also, that's the name. That's the name of like the uh, their their equivalent of the Enterprise, the the starship that they're all on. And it looks so much like Star Trek. It's it's almost weird that uh, the Roddenberry Estate is not suing them to stop production of this thing because it looks like. And a lot of the reviewers dinged it as like basically being Seth MacFarlane's version of cosplay, which is like. Kind of a, a sick burn, but uh, wow. but yeah, it's um it's very 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 close to the look of Star Trek, but uh, see, I otherwise, just assumed not I, much. I just assumed it was more of a, like a spoof comedy, and that's how they yeah. were getting away with that. And Seth yeah. McFar- yeah. Nick McFarlane, I I mean, I like his cartoon stuff. Uh, I I don't understand why he wants to become a leading man. To me, yeah. it just seems like that's not where his talents lie. He doesn't have I think, to, yeah. Yeah, I think you're probably right. I think he's just probably been behind the scenes for, I mean, Family Guy started in what, like 99 or something? So it's been like, what, 17, 18 years yeah. of him, you know, slowly uh, emerging and, you know, raking in all this money and probably people whispering in his ear and just telling him yes all the time. So maybe he's just convinced himself that he, that America wants to see him, you know, <laughs> lead something. But I don't know if that's necessarily the case. Okay. Let's move on. HT wrote this uh, mini feature on the site called Is Rotten Tomatoes Responsible for a Terrible Summer Movie Box Office? So, HT, is it responsible? So, Hollywood just had one of its worst summer movie seasons um, at the box office in 20 years. We haven't had as few tickets sold this summer since 1992. Uh, And a lot of industry executives in Hollywood are pointing the finger at... Uh, Rotten Tomatoes, the movie aggregation, movie review aggregation site, uh, which compiles all the movie reviews from around the web, the web and traditional outlets, and composites it into a neat hundred uh, percent scale score, uh, with any movie above sixty percent having a fresh rating and anything below that having a rotten rating. So industry executives are blaming this scoring system for being a reductive way of uh, critiquing and um, describing movies. And so they're saying that movies that have rotten scores are getting uh, worse box office returns, which has kind of been the case this summer. We've seen flops of uh, movies like The Mummy, which was uh, intended to be the launch pad of the dark universe for um, Universal. And we've seen flops of usual uh, stalwarts at the box office, like Pirates of the Caribbean or Transformers The Last Night, uh, they, which did well, somewhat well internationally, but did not do very well at the domestic box office. And Baywatch was also um, expected to be a huge success uh, financially, but did not do very well um, because people just weren't interested in a Baywatch reboot. But the New York Times article that this is based off of uh, spoke to some of the industry executives who who say things like, I think it's the destruction of our business. Uh, this was from uh, Brett Ratner, who has directed X-Men The Last Stand and uh, illustrious movies like Movie 43. Um <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the New York Times article goes on to say the sentiment is echoed almost daily in studio dining rooms all summer. Um, last month, month a chief executive for a major movie company looked this 
reporter directly in the eye and declared flatly that his mission was to destroy the review aggregation site. So I do think that the summer has been worse for big tentpole movies and big uh, blockbuster films, but not. But Rotten Tomatoes is not directly responsible for this. Um, there has been the rise of streaming sites like Netflix and Amazon and Hulu, which encourage people to stay at home and wait for movies to come out. Movie tickets are getting more and more expensive. And most importantly, these movies are bad. <laughs> Yeah, and I, so, I, I think the rise of social media, not that like it hasn't been, uh, you know, prevalent in the past few years, but like now more than ever, when a movie hits and there is bad buzz, it spreads like wildfire. And mm-hmm. I don't think people are tweeting, oh, this movie has a 50 percent Rotten Tomato score. You know, right. it's your friends and family and people you follow saying bad things about the movie that they paid for and they were disappointed by. Uh, exactly. It's it's just as much much about word of mouth as it is about the Rotten Tomato score, which can act as a good indicator of how well a movie will be received, but isn't the defining factor or you know the the hammer that will knock down a movie. Um, a Josh Spiegel um, at Slashfilm wrote a really good article a couple months ago about how critics aren't out to get movies. They're not, you know, the defining dominant force when it comes to how well a movie does at the box office. They want to see good movies do well just as much as anyone else and share that with their fans, uh, with the fans of the movies. And I think fans and audiences are becoming more selective about the movies that they go to see. And they want to see good movies and they want to see bad movies. And it's good to know that good films that are well-reviewed and that are well-liked and have good word of mouth are doing well at the box office. We saw the success of Wonder Woman. We saw the success of Girls Trip, even um, Baby Driver, which was a mid-budget film that didn't have any uh, franchise connections or sequel connections, did really well at the box office. The Big Sick, for example, which was a big festival um, hit, but wasn't by any means a franchise or big rom-com. It was very successful at the box office. So while we've had a really bad summer for box office receipts for big tent poles, we've seen some good ones for movies that deserve the money. Yeah. Um, I would say this. Uh, on the studio side of things, uh, have you bought in tickets on, on Fandango recently? I have. If you go to Fandango, Fandango bought Rotten Tomatoes in 2016 – and sometime in the last year, they started adding the tomato meter rating to the movie pages. Mm-hmm. So if I go to buy a movie, a, a ticket to Transformers, uh, the last night, I, I, you know, before I click buy, I see that horrible green splat in my face, mm-hmm. um, which seems counterproductive for a, a company that's whole business model is trying to sell tickets. Um, right. On the other hand, I don't think I see any place on the Fandango website that is like, let me see what is playing in theaters around me that is high on the tomato meter score. Right. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, I feel no, like, uh, yeah, I feel like, for that. why isn't there? Why isn't there a page that's like, show me what is playing that's good? Yeah, I mean, like, right. it, it, I don't know. So I feel like on that that sense, there seems to – these two companies, uh, the merger of these two companies seems to be at odds. But um, I don't know. Ben, what do, you, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think that Josh said it well in his piece and HT has sort of reiterated it. It's all about just making good movies. Like, that's what will get people out. And, you know, there are so many um, factors holding people back from going to theaters – 
it's got to be good for people to want to go and spend their money on it these days. So it's, it's, uh, you know, changing times, all that stuff. It, it just, I, I agree that, um, that, yeah, that should be the main factor. I, I, I think it's like a weird scapegoat that the studios are just trying to, you know, pass the buck on to somebody else. Um, it's a, I'm not sure about Fandango having like a go see this if it's good kind of thing because, you know, there's like the studios themselves ho- hold ownership over um, Rotten Tomatoes. So I'm sure there's some sort of talk back and forth between them and Fandango, which owns a lot of Rotten Tomatoes. So I, I'm not sure. Maybe the maybe the reason that that kind of page that you're looking for isn't on Fandango is because the studios are trying to hold back um, you know, even further, even more than what's already there. I'm not sure. But you'd think uh, the studios wouldn't want Fandango <clears throat> to have the Rotten Tomato score for a Rotten movie on right. the ticket page. Right. right, yeah, and I'm wondering if that's just because they are trying to uh, preserve some independence and, and you know, establish themselves as, like, a legitimate kind of thing. Um, yeah, it, it's a weird thing with, with any sort of uh, involvement from the studios at all. It's uh, you got to think that there's something going on behind the scenes where, you know, people don't want to rub things too far in the wrong direction. But, um, yeah, it's a it's and we should also mention the movie. We've said this on the podcast in the past that the movie going experience has suffered in the last few years. You know, people are right. on their phones. They're making mm-hmm. noise. AMC is now the fast food of <laughs> movie chains. Yeah. And it's like. You know, I I almost would rather stay in, in my house, which is sad because I love movie theater so much and I love going to the movie theater. Um, but I feel like that is taking a, a toll on the movie going public. And then uh, on top of that, and we've mentioned this before, you know, a service like MoviePass comes along, which wants to let you see as many movies as you want for nine ninety nine a month. And big chains are against it. <laughs> like It's just like, I don't know. It just seems... Um, I don't know. It, it seems like this industry. Does, They're in flux. Yeah, it, it, it reminds me of the the music industry when Napster hit. It, it feels mm-hmm. like they are not reacting to what the concerns of their customers are fast mm-hmm. enough, and it, it sadly, it might end up like the music industry. <laughs> yeah. I do also want to mention that in regards to whether Rotten Tomatoes is the culprit or not, um, the U.S box office returns uh, the box office returns of um, American movies are also suffering in China which is supposedly the second biggest uh, market for US films but movies like The Mummy and Transformers The Last Night didn't do as well as, as expected in China because they have it seems like they're also having less interest for movies that just seems like that seem like rehashes or are you know hollow uh, reiterations of yeah tired yeah tropes and also china seeing that there's a lot of money to be made here and they're starting to make big budget films for Mm -hmm. the chinese audiences and the screens are getting taken up by those there's less uh hollywood movies going over there so um yeah there's a lot of factors uh you can read ht's full article on slashfilm.com uh it's definitely worth reading let's go into the mailbag guys michelle from brazil asks in your opinion what are the movies with the greatest plot twists? Uh, since if my question is picked, I'm pretty sure titles such as The Others, Sixth Sense, and Seven will be mentioned. Could you recommend more unknown movies? Okay, so before we get into this question, and by the way, you can send your questions to the mailbox 
at, or mailbag at peter at slashfilm.com and please leave your name in general geographic location in case we mention it on the air uh before we get into this this is about plot spoilers so uh i think ben you said it right like even knowing that a plot spoiler is in a movie might be a spoiler for you yeah like the just the idea of you know hearing that oh x movie has a a cool plot twist you're gonna watch that movie differently if you've never seen it before you're gonna be waiting for it right and like that is a a different kind of experience than you would have if you're just watching something fresh without knowing anything about it so uh i would just recommend that if anybody is like super 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 spoiler averse maybe tune out now but if you're you know we're not going to give away any of the actual literal plot twists of the movies that we talk about, but we are going to mention movies that have plot twists in them. So if you're worried about, you know, Oh, I've got a bunch of things that I still need to see. And maybe they're going to mention one of them. And you know, if that could maybe uh, affect your viewing experience in some way, um, you know, just take all that into account as we go forward in the next few minutes. On on top of that though, a lot of the movies we're going to mention are um, older films or lesser seen films. Uh, So if you haven't seen them by now, um, you know, here's some recommendations. Uh, that's what I look at it as. Uh, I'll start this off with a, a film called Primer, which I saw at the Sundance 2000, uh, 2004 Sundance Film Festival. And I'm not sure it has necessarily a plot twist, but it has a ton of twists and turns that uh, I've seen the film, I think, probably like six, seven times at this point. And I, I still don't think I've wrapped my head around um, and I don't think that spoils the film in any way. It's a time travel <laughs> movie. They invent a time machine and, uh, it is done in a very realistic, literal way. And it's, uh, I mean, I've seen infographics online that try to explain the, the, you know, the series of events and it is very confusing. But, uh, if, if you like complicated movies, uh, primer. Have either of you seen Primer? Yes, it's uh, yeah, definitely a, a mind bender. Um, I think I've seen it twice, and yeah, like you, I still can't fully grasp it. The infographics on this thing are way more complex than <laughs> the the typical ones that you see, maybe for like Inception or something. Like if you think Inception is hard to follow, like Primer is going to blow your mind. So uh, it's definitely worth seeing because it's a super super low budget movie and a really great example of what you can do with a smart script and uh very little resources so any you know uh, up-and-coming filmmakers or aspiring filmmakers should definitely watch it and and see sort of what's possible with a super tiny budget yeah hd how about you i have not i have not seen it yet uh what is your pick um my first pick is memento so this is one of this is Christopher Nolan's first movie, uh, so well, second, first second feature movie. film, yeah. yes, uh, after following. And uh, this one is a twist that um, is not particularly a huge plot twist, but rather a twist of your perception, which is something that Nolan likes to do. It uh, changes the way that you've been watching the beginning of the film up until then. And it's a uh, it's very effective and very compelling. And um, it definitely plays with your expectations of the protagonist and his motivations. So I won't go into anything other than that, but it's extremely well done and it does it so well with the um, use of interlapping uh, timelines that um, that 
Memento does because half of the film is told backwards while the other one is told through a series of just one scene of a phone call. Um, And it's one of my favorite films. And because this plot twist is done so effectively, it never feels cheap or gimmicky. Yeah, for sure. Memento is a great film. I remember when it was coming out on DVD, one of the the marketing gimmicks was that you could watch the movie in chronological order through uh, DVD branching technology. And I did that. (laughs) And the movie is not quite as interesting in chronological order. Uh, Yes, Ben, what's your pick? Uh, so I'm going to start it off with uh, the 1973 movie The Sting. This is directed by George Roy Hill, and it stars Paul Newman and Robert Redford as uh, basically a, a pair of con men. And I think a lot of con men movies would probably work well in this uh, this partic- as an answer to this mailbag question. Um, Peter, you re- recently talked about the Brothers Bloom on an episode of uh, Slash Film Daily. That one I think would would apply here as well. Any sort of uh, you know even like Ocean's Eleven, like any sort of heist movie or a, a con kind of movie um, is typically good at uh, setting things up and then sort of pulling the rug out from under you. Um, characters typically get conned and then oftentimes the audience themselves will get conned too. So that's a a fun little meta moment there. Um, The Sting is one of the best ones though. So if you haven't seen that one, I'm not going to really give away what happens, but uh, again, a lot of twists and turns and an ending that you don't necessarily see coming. I think a lot of us tend to focus on, you know, big twists at the end of movies, but I think there are quite a few films that do it, you know, in the middle. Uh, Like one of them I think is Gone Girl. Uh, David Fincher film starring Ben Affleck. Uh, his wife has been murdered, and he is uh, he is thought to be the killer. Is he the killer? Is someone else the killer? What happened to his wife? Uh, you know, that's the mystery at the core of this movie. And you know, something happens halfway through the movie that is unexpected and makes you, you know, reevaluate everything that you have seen thus far. Uh, and I, I just love it. Uh, that, that's a movie that came out a couple of years ago. I love, um, another film I just want to mention for a half, like, you know, that doesn't happen at the very end plot twist, but a more recent film, Spider-Man Homecoming. What a great moment and scene. And I'm not going to go any further than that. I know uh, which one you're talking about. Yeah. That's such an awesome moment. But, uh, yeah, let, let, let's move on to your next choice, HT. So my next choice is The Usual Suspects, which is a great film about an unreliable narrator um, played by Kevin Spacey. And this is also one that has kind of been spoiled throughout the years, but it doesn't ruin your uh, enjoyment of the film watching it, which I thought was um, incredibly, which was I thought was incredibly well done um, in the film. So I think that the fact, I think the reliance on an unreliable narrator is one of the more um, effective ways of doing a plot twist because it makes you not only distrust the all the everything that's happening in front of you but also distrust your own sort of instincts when you're watching this film uh yeah we're, we're, yeah. D- we're definitely seeing that with mr robot i think is taking mm-hmm. a uh huge cue from usual suspects um, so if you're watching that, that's filled with twists, um, because mm-hmm. of the unusual, I mean, because of the unreliable narrated n- narrator, uh, Ben, what's your next pick? Uh, I'm going to go with M night Shyamalan's the village, which, uh, you could talk about a lot of M night Shyamalan movies in this one, but, uh, I happen to think that the village is one of his best films. Um, Chris Evangelista actually wrote a really great article on slash film.com 
uh, back in early August called The Unpopular Opinion. 13 years later, The Village stands as one of M. Night Shyamalan's best movies. I would recommend reading that because I agree with virtually every word that Chris writes in that piece. Um, I think there's a lot going on in this film. Uh, it was sort of unfairly maligned, in my opinion, when it came out. Um, I think Roger Ebert uh, notoriously hated this movie and thought it was a joke. Uh, but I think there's a lot there. Um, there. The story is really good. The acting is all great. And um, yeah, the, I, I don't want to give anything away because I feel like a lot of people probably just skipped this one because uh, that was around the time when Shyamalan's career was sort of on a downslope. Yeah. And um, if anyone has not seen the village i would definitely recommend going and checking it out because i think there's a lot there that's worth digging into um and it might surprise you yeah bryce dallas howard is fantastic in that movie we'll link chris's piece in the show notes if you're looking for that um another film i wanted to mention i mean we've already mentioned what one chris nolan film so far i'm gonna mention another one and that's the prestige um starring uh hugh jackman and christian bale as uh feuding magicians and this is an adaptation of a book and it's uh as you can imagine magicians have secrets that they would go to in huge lengths to hide and uh the secrets that are at the core of this movie are fascinating honestly the first time i saw this movie i was disappointed by the twists in this movie uh but it has quickly for some reason become one of my favorite movies Uh, you know i love magic uh so it might take you uh a second viewing to to get on board with some of the the uh, turns that it takes but uh if you have never seen the prestige i highly recommend it so my next uh, choice is Arrival, um, directed by Denis Villeneuve, and it was last year. It came out last year. Uh, it's a sci-fi film starring Amy Adams, and it is about an alien um, arrival, as the title says. And it's not a film that you would expect to have a twist, but it is one of the most gratifying and just. I don't want to use the word mind blowing because I think it's overused so much, but it really was mind blowing in the way that it played out just because it wasn't presented as a movie that would have a twist. And when I was um, reading up on it, I don't think people especially uh, re- uh, emphasize that sort of change, uh, that game change that you see halfway through the film. And again, it's one that is about a change of perception. Uh, There's something called the Kuleshov effect, which was coined by Alfred Hitchcock, and it's about how our perceptions shape what we expect of an image. And I think Arrival does a really excellent job of just making a feature film out of the Kuleshov effect, because throughout the film, we see these flashbacks, and um, the way that they're presented uh, and the way that we traditionally uh, see flashbacks they they uh, present a different image of the film than what you would expect. I won't go into any further than that, but it is just um, astonishing how well this film plays with uh, the concept of time and the concept of uh, memory and emotion, and I love that. That's a fantastic choice. That was my favorite movie of last year, and it just it was yeah, me it too. wrecked me. Oh, mm-hmm. So good. Um, so my next one is Old Boy, the uh, 2003 movie by Park Chan-wook. If, man, I don't even know if I need to say anything because this twist has probably been spoiled for people too. It was remade by Spike Lee, I think in like 2013 or something. Um, if 
for some reason, you were one of those people who have just, you know, heard about people talking about Old Boy over the years, but have never actually sat down and read it. And if somehow you've not had anything spoiled for you, go watch this movie. It will uh, screw with your mind in a major way. And um, man, it might mess you up. So uh, yeah, man, Old Boy. This one, there's such power in the way that he constructs images and the editing in this movie is insane. The story itself is about this guy who's imprisoned uh, for 15 years without knowing who captured him or who put him in this room or why. And when he finally just gets out one day, it's all about him trying to discover the secrets behind what happened to him, what's going on. There is some crazy stuff that goes down in this film. So check out old boy. If you haven't seen it. Definitely agree. Uh, HT, what's the last film on your list? Uh, speaking of Hitchcock, as I was a little earlier, uh, my last choice is Psycho, one of Hitchcock's most renowned films and one of the films that's most known for its twist. And that twist is in the, again, shift in perception uh, of who the protagonist is and where your focus of the story goes. Um, and I think Hitchcock is does so well with twists because he, like, He's been called the master of suspense for a reason. Um, it may not be one of his best twists, but it definitely is one of his most memorable ones and one's, one that has gone down in history. Yes. Um, and I remember watching Psycho and knowing, you know, the ending and uh, who the villain was, but still being very shocked and surprised and taken along for the ride. And that's the mark of a good of a well-made film, I think. You, you know, uh, probably one of my favorite twists from Hitchcock is Vertigo, which... Uh, mm. it, yeah, it's a almost a, a, a Gone Girl like twist. Um, yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned you knew the twist ahead of time. I think for a lot of people, for, with a lot of older movies, th- this tends to be the case. You know, I, you know, I went into Empire Strikes Back as a kid, knowing you know Luke, I am your father, wh- whatever. Uh, you know, and I, I feel like a lot of people know that going in. It's not something that they experience in the movie, but just. You know, when you're watching the movie, the emotion and the story, you get caught up in it. And mm-hmm. um, even if you have been spoiled, I think it still plays out. Uh, ben, you have a bunch of more films for us. Yeah, just three more that I wanted to fire off real quick. Uh, I'll go in order of uh, oldest to newest, I guess. So in 1974, uh, there was a movie adaptation of Agatha Christie's Murder on the Orient Express, which is pretty good. They're doing a remake uh, coming out soon. I recently read uh, the novel for the first time, and I'd seen this um, this 74 movie that has a terrific cast, like Lauren Bacall, Sean Connery, Vanessa Redgrave, um, Anthony Perkins, a ton of great people. So you might want to watch that one if you uh, are looking forward to the new one and, and you know, just can't wait for <laughs> for Kenneth Branagh's new film. But um, but, yeah, it's about a detective on a train and there's a murder and it basically gets snowbound and they realize that the murderer is on the train and it's all about figuring out. It's like a classic sort of whodunit story. But this one changes up the formula a little bit in an interesting way and i won't give away how that uh how the whole thing plays out but um yeah it's a it's a a unique uh take on the whodunit sort of uh framework um 2004 saw by james wan is obviously a, a classic sort of uh crazy plot twist ending movie that you'll see on a ton of lists and stuff like that um 
but it's there for a reason. This is such a good movie. And I think the the Saw franchise as a whole, I think Jacob Hall, uh, Slash Films Managing Editor, has written at length about this. But um, the Saw franchise is one that I think is is wildly undervalued. Uh, I think a lot of people look at it as nothing more than torture porn. But there's a ton of cool stuff there um, with the way that this franchise plays with chronology and stuff like that. And it all stems from the shocking ending of the first movie. So uh the first movie holds up very well as a, a single film but i think it also works really well as a launch pad yeah. for the stuff that came after i think a lot of people like to write right off that series as torture porn this film i saw at the sundance film festival in 2004 i mean it was a film good enough to show there and uh i i think uh the film and the twist hold up yeah definitely and then the last one is um kill list and this is one that i I think a lot of people probably have not seen it's a british movie from ben wheatley who directed free fire earlier this year uh this movie i is one of the few films where i sat in the theater for i think probably five minutes even after the credits rolled in the dark just like like burned into my seat like I could not move I was so shaken by what happens in this movie and I don't don't want to say really much more than that it's about um a hitman and his partner who take on an assignment with the promise of a big payoff to for you know taking on a new job and things unspool and unravel from there and this movie descends into madness of a level that you will not see coming and i don't want to say anything else but uh, if you've not seen kill list it'll wreck you yeah this is the only film on that we've mentioned that i have not seen so i'm gonna oh my god yeah peter i've not seen it either you guys should um, ht it might be a little much because you're not crazy (laughs) about horror movies yeah and it, it definitely sort of dips into the horror genre but i would love for both of you guys to watch this and let me know what you think about it because uh yeah it i cannot think of another movie in the past a decade that I have just been like shell shocked as much as I have uh, with Kill List. So that's a, a high recommendation. Okay, I'm adding it to my letterboxed watch list right now. Uh, so submit questions to the mailbag, send them to peter at slashfilm.com. Please mention your name and general geographic location in case we mention them on the air. You can read all the stories that we mentioned on today's show on slashfilm.com. Slash Film Daily is published every weekday, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and television, as well as deeper dives into the great features from the site. Uh, You can subscribe to Slash Film Daily on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, and all the popular podcast apps. And uh, we we are still experimenting. So if you have feedback, send it to peter at slashfilm.com. Please rate and review this podcast on iTunes and spread the word. You can find more of me at Slash Film on Twitter. You can find... HT at HTranBui on Twitter. You can find Ben at Ben Pierce on Twitter, and we'll see you tomorrow.